Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's show looks at how Kanye West has joined a long line of anti-Semitic geniuses and how his current ordeal echoes the tribulations of one Ezra Pound. My guest is a great young writer named Ross Anderson, whose recent piece at Tablet Magazine, Black Skinhead, is well worth your time and is on this recent Kanye West breakdown. I'm me tooing the Jewish culture right now mm. and saying, y'all got to come out and say what y'all have done between the mob action what they'll do for uh, group think, like if you go against them, I put the White Lives Matter t-shirt and they cancel my shows. And they've actually called multiple people and threatened them to step away from me. They call Candace Owens, they call Tucker Carlson, mm-hmm. they call anybody, all, even the people that was with me when I had the red hat, they called them. Yikes, that was just a snippet of Kanye West explaining how Jews control the media, and are persecuting him. He was on the Drink Champs podcast. He was in this clip tripling down, as it were, because it began with a tweet where Ye announced he would go DEFCON 3 on the Jews. DEFCON with an F is the defense readiness condition or alert status for U.S. forces. Watch the movie War Games for more on that. DEFCON is either a deliberate malapropism or an accidental mispronunciation or misspelling. Anyway, after that, Ye posted uh, to Instagram a series of texts with his fellow hip-hop mogul P. Diddy, a.k.a. Puff Daddy. Puff wanted to meet with Ye about his new line of t-shirts that debuted at Fashion Week in Paris that said simply, White Lives Matter. And Ye wasn't interested. And in these texts, one of them from Kanye said... He would use Puff as an example, quote, to show the Jewish people that told you to call me, that no one can threaten or influence me. I told you this was war. Now you're going to get some business. Okay. Oi. Pardon the pun, but I miss the old Kanye. Now let's get two things out of the way here. Number one, there's no squinting and explaining away what Kanye has been saying in the last two weeks or so. These are classic anti-Semitic tropes, that Jews are a collective, that they are a shadowy cabal that control the world through intrigue and conspiracy. Whether it's the banks, the media, or the government, it's the same poison lie every time, and it has been historically used by demagogues to spark pogroms and mass violence against my people. Number two, Kanye's embrace of the socialism of fools does not diminish his art. As listeners of The Re-Education know, we here at The Re-Education separate the art from the artists. For more on that, listen to the episode of that name, Art and the Artist, or a little later on my episode with Michael Moynihan on Great Artists with Terrible Politics. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, is anybody surprised? I mean, until now, did you think that Kanye West was managing his celebrity with grace and composure? Is this the first time you are learning that Mr. West suffers from bipolarity and has manic episodes? Come on. But just in case you are new to the Kanye show, let's go back to Ye's real first year or two as a bona fide superstar. This is after the release of his second record, Late Registration, a classic if there ever was one. And here he is at the 2005 benefit for Hurricane Katrina victims. Kanye's on stage with SNL alum Michael Myers of Wayne's World fame. And this is the viral moment that almost everybody knows. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Okay, so that was when Kanye was beloved 
by the left. And even though George W. Bush would later say that this was one of the lowest moments of his presidency and expressed real indignation about the comment, no one in Hollywood or the media or anybody else really batted an eye when Kanye said that. You know, this was when Kanye was kind of on the left and the view was that he was entitled to his opinion. Many people shared it. There were even internet remixes of Kanye beats, particularly the great gold digger beat, with those remarks about, you know, George W. Bush doesn't like black people. It was a huge viral thing. Now, if you watch that entire scene, it's clear that Kanye's grasp of reality, even back then in 2005, was tenuous. A few moments before he made the famous remark about George Bush not liking black people, here he is asserting the U.S. military was given permission to shoot people in New Orleans. I mean, this is Red Cross is doing everything they can. We, we already realize a lot of the people that could help are at war right now fighting another way. And they, they, they've given them permission to go down and shoot us. Now let's fast forward to 2018. Here is an infamous episode where Kanye addresses the newsroom at TMZ. He talks for a while about how, you know, he was drugged out on opioids, which I guess were sort of drugs that were prescribed for him because of his bipolarity. He gets into a colloquy with Van Latham, who is terribly disappointed in him. This is right around the time when Kanye wore the MAGA hat and said that slavery might have been a choice or was a choice. And, you know, anyway, here's a snippet. And he covers so many things. By the way, Candace Owens is there. Anyway, listen to this clip. I just got off the phone with J. Cole. He said, how do you feel when they said the Crips is going to uh, kill you? I said, man, that was the headline. But when they said um, they wanted to beat me up, I said, that's great. They're my brothers. They love me. They don't want nothing to happen to you. They just want to beat some sense to me. I love Daz. I love the Crips. I love the Bloods. I love everyone. So again, we are not surprised. Kanye has always been a little nuts. And that mental imbalance, that fragile grasp on reality has also been an artistic superpower, probably. Four weeks after Ye expressed his love for the rival street gangs of Los Angeles who apparently wanted to thrash him, he released this. Don't you grow up in a hurry. Your mama be worried. Oh, it was all part of the story. Even the scary nights. Thank you for all of the glory. You will be remembered all. Thank you to all of the heroes of the night. They gotta repeat the colors. The lie is wearing off. Reality is upon us. Colors dripping off. Colors dripping off. Isn't that gorgeous? Still gives me chills. So it's tough for me, a Jewish fan of Ye, to see the artist descent into anti-Semitism. But that said... He's hardly the first genius to go ham on the chosen people. Pardon the pun. There is the Enlightenment novelist and philosopher Voltaire. In his 1772 essay, One Must Take Sides, he said, Of my people, you have surpassed all nations in impertinent fables, in bad contact, and in barbarism. You deserve to be punished, for this is your destiny. If you want to go back... Even further, Martin Luther, a very important figure in terms of reforming the Catholic Church, said even worse things about the Jewish people. Moving on to the 20th century, we have Roald Dahl, author of James and the Giant Peach and many other treasures of children's literature. He once told the New Statesman, there's a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Alice Walker, the author of The Color Purple, 
has embraced conspiracy theories of various anti-Semites like David Icke's. I could name many more. But when thinking about Kanye today, it's really worth looking at some of the parallels between him and Ezra Pound, a literary giant of the 20th century, and arguably one of the greatest poets in the history of the English language, who also chose the side of the fascists in World War II. The ants, a centaur in his dragon world, pull down thy vanity. It is not man made courage or made order or made grace. Pull down thy vanity, I say, pull down. Learn of the green world what shall be thy place in scaled invention or true artistry. Pull down thy vanity. Pacan, pull down the green cask, cause outdone your arrogance. That was a snippet from Pound's multi-part epic poem, The Cantos, or Songs. I love that line, the ants a centaur in his dragon world. I mean, the Cantos is enormous, but this part of it, just from the Pisan Cantos, is fantastic. Like Kanye, Ezra Pound was a polymath. He attracted and cultivated great talent. Just as Kanye produced and spotlighted Kid Cudi and Nicki Minaj, Pound took a red pen to the first draft of T.S. Eliot's masterpiece, The Wasteland, and condensed it by about half. T.S. Eliot, in turn, dedicated that poem to Ezra Pound with Il Miglior Fabro, or its translation to The Better Craftsman, that is from Dante. Ezra Pound also edited Ernest Hemingway, W.B. Yeats, and many others. Also like Kanye West, Ezra Pound took his inspiration from old forms to create new works of art. Here is Yale professor Langdon Hammer explaining this idea as it applies to Pound's Kantos poem, the epic poem of many parts, which he really wrote over the last half of his life. The way to understand this great and, and maddening and somewhat mad poem uh, which is one of the great works of, of modern poetry uh, in which we're reading just the smallest fragment. One way to, to understand it uh, is as the record of one man's reading, uh, one man's uh, encounter with many voices and his incorporation of them and engagement and conversation with them. Isn't that what the best hip-hop producers do? create works in discussion with and borrowing from pieces of music and sound that came before it? Anyway, to illustrate my point here, work with me for a second, and how Kanye is in some ways taking Pound's approach, which is, you know, like Pound would, you know, revive these old English kind of forms of poetry and give them to a modern context. And here, anyway, here is Kanye in a kind of, Ezra Pound-like dialogue with the great Otis Redding. Notice here, it starts off with just sort of a version, you know, I think it's a little bit sped up, of the original song. But the way that he chops it up and edits it and kind of eventually settles on the beat where you hear Jay-Z rapping. It's turning an old thing into a new thing, and I kind of see that as a parallel with Ezra Pound. 
Anyway, also like Kanye, Ezra Pound's politics soured and spoiled as he drifted into middle age. In the 1920s and 1930s, Ezra Pound became obsessed with what uh, he thought of as usury or the unfair debt on people and nations that were created by a banking system that he believed was dominated by, you guessed it, the Jews. And like many Western intellectuals of this period, Ezra Pound became a bit of a devotee of fascism. He came to love Benito Mussolini and he moved to Italy in the 1930s. And, you know, when World War II broke out, Ezra Pound was on the side of the Axis powers. He recorded these series of radio programs that, you know, they attacked international Jewry, they attacked Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, international banking, and they would be broadcast in English. He, he did this in English, even after America entered the war. So American GIs presumably would be hearing this, and it was considered propaganda for the Axis powers, broadcast on Radio Roma, which was controlled by the Mussolini regime. Here's a snippet of one of those addresses from February 10th, 1942. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was born with a name sacred to every man who cares for poetry written in English, Rossetti, and she said, The worst manners come from people trying to be nasty to people who they consider inferior. Matter of class, and the Nazis have wiped out that feeling and wiped out bad manners in Germany. The new Europe goes on now, doing what American democracy, in the clean sense of that word, started doing when it made a declaration of independence. Now, here you could probably see the parallel right there, in the sense that, like, what in the world is Ezra Pound babbling about? The Nazis are like the American founding fathers? Their conquest of Europe was akin to the Declaration of Independence? They have eliminated bad manners? What? That sounds crazy. And it is, in fact, crazy. It doesn't sound That's crazy. Anyway, for these radio speeches that were broadcast again from Radio Roma, Ezra Pound was tried and convicted in absentia in a Washington, D.C. court for treason in 1943. When the Allies finally liberated Italy, Ezra Pound did turn himself in. And when Germany surrendered on May 8th, 1945, Ezra Pound gave the following statement, which I really want to read to sort of demonstrate how addled and curdled his mind was at this point. So here's what he said. I am not anti-Semitic, and I distinguish between the Jewish usurer and the Jew who does an honest day's work for a living. Hitler and Mussolini were simple men from the country. I think that Hitler was a saint and wanted nothing for himself. I think that he was fooled into anti-Semitism and it ruined him. That was his mistake. When you see the quote-unquote mess that Italy gets into by bumping off Mussolini, you will see why someone could believe in some of his efforts. All right, first of all, what that's a strange statement to give after you've turned yourself into the, you know, army of your own country, of your own citizenship that just won a war against those people because it doesn't sound like, you know, he's denouncing it in any way. And it also makes no sense at all. Adolf Hitler wasn't fooled by the I don't know, some amorphous blob of anti He was like a leading theorist of anti-Semitism. You should read Mein Kampf. And he certainly propagated it. So it's kind of a strange... The whole thing is bizarre. Anyway, Ezra Pound was detained at a military camp at Pisa. He was, for a few weeks, confined to a six-foot-by-six-foot metal cage that was exposed to the elements with a tar paper roof. He slept on a slab of concrete. At first, 
The Allies worried that fascist partisans would actually try to break the poet out of jail. That did not happen. Eventually, Ezra Pound was moved to a more comfortable medical area and began his work, you know, in detention, reading and translating Confucius and writing the Pisan Contos, which was the section of the epic Contos poem that he was kind of working on for the last half of his life that, you know, reflected his time in uh, this detention camp. By the end of 1945, Ezra Pound was back in America. And while he was convicted of treason in 1943 for those radio broadcasts, Pound was never jailed or executed. Instead, a panel of psychiatrists ruled that he was legally insane and of unsound mind so that he could not stand trial. And instead, he was sent to the St. Elizabeth Mental Institution in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C. He would remain there for 13 years. At first, he was sent to the ward for the criminally insane, for people who had committed violent crimes. I like this little line that Pound wrote. This is a little snippet here of his encounter with a fellow mental patient. He wrote, I met a very pleasant chap. We had many interesting conversations. He seemed no crazier than I. When I found out that he had been committed for killing his wife, I reconsidered my position. I like that. That's very understated. Anyway, here's where the story gets even weirder. But in some ways, there's a parallel to our own moment here and the kind of perennial issue of separating the art from the artist. Because while Pound is in St. Elizabeth's, he wins this prestigious poetry award known as the Bollingen Prize from the Library of Congress. And he wins it for the section of the contest that he wrote while he was in Pisa in that detention camp, the Pisan Contos. This was in 1949, and it was when memories of the war were still very fresh. A young congressman named Jacob Javits, who would later go on to be the senator from New York State, launched an investigation into how a traitor could win such a prize while he was in a mental institution. And eventually, the Bollingen Award was kind of taken away entirely from the Library of Congress, and from then on, it, was, it has been administered by Yale University. Here is Malcolm Cowley writing about all of this in The New Republic shortly after you know, the controversy over the Bollingen Prize. I like this. I'm going to read this right here. The little American Republic of Letters is under attack by pretty much the same forces as those to which the Russian writers have already yielded. That is, by people who prefer slogans to poetry and national self-flattery to honest writing. End of quote. Throughout the 1950s, some of the world's best writers, people like E.E. Cummings, T.S. Eliot, Ernest Hemingway, campaigned for their mentor and friend to be allowed to live out the rest of his life in Italy, where he desperately wanted to go. Here is Hemingway in 1955 on the occasion of Ezra Pound's 70th birthday. Quote, I believe he made bad mistakes in the war in contributing to broadcast for that sod Mussolini after we were fighting him. But I also believe he has paid for them in full and his continued confinement is a cruel and unusual punishment. End quote from Ernest Hemingway. Well, eventually the campaign worked in 1958. Ezra Pound was released from St. Elizabeth's, but by this point, he you'd have to say he was a broken man in many ways. Here is American Poet Laureate Donald Hall sharing his experience of interviewing Ezra Pound in 1959 when he traveled to Rome for the Paris Review. He went in and out of speech. There were times when he was eloquent and witty and uh, building a story nicely, but then maybe in the middle of a sentence... He would collapse and uh, close his eyes and lie back on a little bed and uh, say that he was a failure. Succeeding in the interview was really important to him. That's one thing I thought of him as being so arrogant. Uh, 
he was desperate to do a good interview, to come off well, and so on. Um, he was a very broken man. Shortly thereafter, he stopped talking almost entirely. He went into the silence. And for the last 10 years of his life, he spoke very few words. All right, so I bring this up for a few reasons. One, I sincerely hope that Kanye's flirtation with anti-Semitism is brief and that he eventually moves on. Unlike Ezra Pound, Kanye has not devoted a lot of time to coming up with any kind of theories of economics to support his conspiratorial views about Jewish people. He hasn't really dwelled on this in his art. It seems to be kind of, you know, we all sort of expected him to get here, but it's not something that he's really put a lot of time into. Nor has Kanye West volunteered his services to America's new authoritarian enemies like China or Russia. So there's, those are important differences we have to keep in mind. I also think Ezra Pound's story tells us something about madness and genius here. And this does apply to Kanye as well. Because the two things are not always so easy to separate madness and genius. Pound's political pronouncements were bonkers in World War II. He wasn't persuading anyone, I don't think, by claiming that the Nazis were bringing good manners to Europe. I mean, how crazy was that? But nonetheless, a few years later, he did write the Pisan Contest, which is great. Should Pound have spent 13 years in a mental institution for taking the wrong side in a great war and babbling about fascism and money lending for a few years on the Italian state radio? I got to say, I think that was excessive. I'm with Ernest Hemingway on that. But it's worth asking the question. And Furthermore, was that punishment of the 13 years in the mental institution, was that really a punishment for Ezra Pound, or was it actually punishing us or the wider Republic of Letters? Because presumably, while he was in a mental institution, it was perhaps a drag on his overall creative output. We don't know, but I think that's a safe assumption. Anyway, it's worth thinking about all of these questions in the context of Mr. West. I don't know that there's an easy answer here other than to say that yay contains multitudes. And well, I'll just leave it at this. I miss the old Kanye. I miss the old Kanye, shape from the gold Kanye, chop up the soul Kanye, set on his goals Kanye. I hate the new Kanye, the bad mood Kanye, the always rude Kanye, spazzing the news Kanye. I miss the sweet Kanye, chop up the beast Kanye. I gotta say, at that time I'd like to meet Kanye. See, I invented Kanye, it wasn't any Kanye. And now I look and look around and there's so many Kanye's. I used to love Kanye, I used to love Kanye. I even had the pink polo, I thought I was. Kanye. What if Kanye made a song about Kanye? Call him Mr. Old Kanye. Man, that be so Kanye. That's all it was, Kanye. We still love Kanye. And I love you like Kanye loves Kanye. <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. All right, everybody. Well, the re-education is very lucky because we have, uh, as our guest today, a young writer, Ross Anderson, who was a 2020 Tablet Fellow, written for a lot of publications, including Los Angeles Magazine, and who's 
piece that we are discussing today for Tablet called Black Skinhead looks at Kanye West's, you could say, paranoia, bipolarity, his mental issues, and his artistic greatness, and asks the question if we can separate the two. Ross Anderson, thank you so much for coming on The Re-Education. Thank you, Eli. I really appreciate having you. It's good to talk with a fellow Kanye fan, and I think you're probably absolutely equally. I don't know if do you find I don't find this unexpected. It it's it's not good news, but it's not necessarily surprising. No, I don't think it's unexpected. So we should we should let's maybe catch our readers up, and I get into a little bit of this in the monologue. The first was last week. We had some tweets saying Kanye, you know, kind of is sporadically on twitter and then you know he comes in usually before he's about to drop a record an album and he says he wants to he's going to go defcon three on the jews now the the phrase of defcon is something that is a warning level from the cold war about sort of nuclear readiness and was popularized in the movie war games defcon is not what it is it's defcon but let's just leave that aside and i originally looked at it and i was like okay i don't know what that means blah 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 but then he started doubling down we saw some comments that were edited out of the tucker carlson interview that was published by vice's motherboard and then he went on the podcast with nori uh, drink champs another rapper drink champs and went bananas <laughs> and it really did sound deranged talking about the jews or the moguls and they signed the black artists and where are the black moguls who signed the jewish artists and it was all like okay i mean so first off we should say this is a kind of classic anti-semitism that says that all jewish people they are like a cabal that runs the media or the banks etc right right and that's this is part of part of the piece was looking at what i i sort of tried to explain it to people i had my own family my family's not jewish i'm not jewish myself but and a lot of people are just befuddled where does this come from and this these ideas come from there's lots of aryan anti-semitism this isn't that it comes from a black nationalist tradition that was sparked by the nation of islam founded in 1930 in detroit and it was this view that the real Jews are the black people who descend from Judea and that white Jews are sort of stealing their claim as this satanic synagogue of, is, is a synagogue of Satan, I should say, pardon me, that is that comes from a verse in the Bible and has been taken from context. And it's basically that it's used as a way to connect a, a bigotry that is that is quite you know that is of a classic form of the sort of disgust mechanism to people that you can't stand but it connects it to this this conspiracy theory a way of explaining the world in this in this very ugly way and it makes anti-semitism quite distinct from other cons- other forms of racism but it also means i think that it's easier for someone like kanye who doesn't really have a history. There's not a history of homophobia, quite the opposite. There's not a history of other forms of racism and bigotry. It's far more easy for someone like that to, in a paranoid state, find anti-Semitism, particularly as it is a more common bigotry among particularly entertainers. He One of the Tucker clips that was removed was he mentioned he's been talking to Ice Cube recently. And that is hardly a shock right. as someone who's been infamous for tweeting this as well. You have the godfather of grime in the UK, Wiley, who was removed from Twitter a while ago because of tweets where he 
claimed that Jews were a massive part of the slave trade, which comes from a, a 1991 book by the Nation of Islam. And you know what? I, it, it, sorry, I'm sort of rambling here, but you get the point. No, 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 that no, no, ideas no. are quite con are quite common within the entertainment industry in a way that other forms of bigotry aren't, and they appeal to a paranoid mind. And, and one with illusions of grandeur. Yeah, and this is a point you made You made in the piece. By the way, if I could date myself, <laughs> I'm going to date myself. I'm an old guy now. When I was in college, Karis One came to speak at my college, and he was re referencing that book about the Jews and the slave trade, and it talked about the De Beers family in South Africa and everything right. like that. So let's just like, this is so obvious, but we should just make it very clear. There are Jewish lawyers. There are Jewish agents. There are Jewish bankers. There are Jewish journalists like myself, it doesn't mean that all of the Jews are operating like a kind of octopus or a hive mind, you know, together, no. just because the, you, you, you notice that there's somebody is Jewish or there's an ethnicity in this particular profession does not tell you that the entire Jewish people are kind of like acting as a single organism or something like that. So that's unfortunate that we have this from Kanye, <laughs> you know, and I thought it was very provocative and, and not just provocative. I thought it was, there was a real truth to what you said is that People who suffer from paranoia and these kinds of delusions, you know, will usually kind of land on the anti-Semitism square because it, it is a conspiracy theory and it, and it sort of maybe talk about that a little bit. It's like the beautiful mind issue, you know? Yeah, it's the, that's a, a perfect example of the same thing where you, there are the, uh, you mentioned this actually in one of your other podcasts about the separation between art and artist where People yeah. who are really brilliant. Well, this, is like, this is like the art and artist part two. Yeah, or part three, I think, even, where yeah. this is a, yeah, yeah. it's an important topic. And it's yeah. that people who are willing to, who see the world in a really radically different way, in a way that they can pull ideas from different places, it is not necessarily surprising that when you apply that to things that are more fact-based, more empirical, they're less, they're, you know, conspiracies are quite rare. In, in politics and in other life, there are very few cabals that control things. And therefore, it, politics can be quite boring to such a mind, I think. And if you are someone who's looking to make these big connections, who's used to like hearing, I could see ghosts, Kanye pulled a, a old Christmas song from the 30s and uses it as a sample. Like that is a, a form of abstraction that most people just can't do. And it makes sense that when you're faced with the normalcies of everyday life, particularly if you're not necessarily in a good headspace, that you're going to connect these things in a way that is not necessarily fruitful, to put it politely. I do, I do make a hesitation, though, of, of necessarily associating it with his bipolar, simply because uh, he, he has said, he has said in the past that he is bipolar, even on the, the cover art for his 2018 album, Yay, which was part of the Wyoming sessions. On the album cover, it ha says, I hate being bipolar, it's awesome. And it was yeah. a really, I, I think for a lot of people at the time, it was quite a beautiful thing seeing someone who was recognizing his struggles and, and sort of embracing it in a way. It wasn't, it wasn't saying this is a good part of him, it was just saying it's a part of me. In the time since, he has said that he was misdiagnosed, that he was tired, I think was the explanation that was given at the time. I don't know anyone who buys that. But the, the point being is that you don't need to rely on this being a bipolar episode to explain it. I think it's perfectly compatible with being it. But you see people like Ice Cube, like Wiley, who can say these things, who are great artists in themselves, and who can come to these paranoid delusions without having bipolar. 
so not that it isn't there, not that it isn't an explanation, but just it isn't a necessary condition for it. Yeah, well, I, I want to talk just for a second here because Wiley and Ice Cube, I'm less familiar with Wiley, but I mean, I, I know some of it, but certainly I know Ice Cube very well. Mm -hmm. And I think Ice Cube was a great artist. He's made a nice transition to making kind of, you know, family-friendly, mediocre movies. And they're really like, and Kanye artistically towers over both of them. Absolutely. There's something about Kanye's output that he's larger than hip hop and yet absolutely essential to hip hop to understand it as a kind of cultural movement. So I want to get a kind of use this time, even though we, we started off and we are in, you know, vigorous agreement, Ross, that Kanye's comments are disturbing and it's, it would be terrible to think that lots and lots of people who like Kanye's music or, you know, admire him culturally would now think it's okay to believe in these conspiracies about Jewish people. But let's, I mean, it's very important for maybe our listeners who are not as into his music to understand that he's really one of the, David Samuels, uh, a senior editor at Tablet. And, Brilliant and writer. A friend of mine, great writer, you know, in 2012 for The Atlantic, called him the American Mozart. I would say he's almost like the, you know, hip hop's Miles Davis because he has, he has changed the music multiple times. And now he's bigger than hip hop because as you point out he's he's had a successful role as a kind of i guess a fashion mogul with Yeezy's the sneakers also you know his fashion line which is now a multi-billion dollar company i guess but also you know i thought Jesus is King which was a gospel album that came out a few years ago was absolutely brilliant and i actually i don't know if that's sorry go ahead yeah, no, I wanna, what were you going to say about that? No, yeah. actually, I was lucky enough when Jesus King was coming out, they did part of Kanye's quite well known for his yeah, sort of Sunday multimedia services, role. Right? He did the Sunday services, but there was a thing that was less talked about, which was he did an IMAX film that was released with it, which was some recordings of it. And I was lucky enough to see it. And that's one of the most phenomenal things I've seen in the cinema. I'm a huge cinephile. And sitting there in an IMAX cinema, listening to Seller, his sort of his big radio hit style power ballad influenced yeah. by gospel hearing that in an imax cinema with those huge speakers it's one of the best moments i've had in a cinema in my life and and i think it, you're absolutely right kanye is i think it's hard to think of a a artist generally not musician artist in any field who has been more influential and more universally brilliant in in such a diverse way who has come to prominence since 2000 it's really hard to think of anyone of similar caliber and i agree yeah and that's absolutely right. And so it's very important, in my view, to just take, let's just take a little bit of time to explain why it's so significant. So Kanye begins his career as a young man, as a young, as a producer, as a, you know, right. and if you go back in hip hop history, the produce originally the DJ was the headliner and the rapper was kind of an afterthought. That's why it's called, the band was called Grandmaster Flash who was the DJ and the Furious Five, who were the rappers. Yes. When, as you go forward, the, the producer kind of goes more behind the scenes and recedes, and then the foreground is taken up by the rapper, who become the rock stars of, of hip-hop. And, you know, there were rappers, there were, what's his, there were producers, like Lord Finesse, who you could hear occasionally his verses, even though he's primarily a producer on some classic tracks. Pete Rock would occasionally rap in his, you know, his his outward output with cl smooth 
you know, even there are some even DJ Premier, who was one of, is one of the greats, would occasionally also you could hear him, you know, occasionally have a line or two. But they were they were not really. It was a little bit like they did tags. Who, they did that audio yeah, those they, signature they, like producer is here this is what he does and that's it right you know there were there were a couple lord finesse had some verses but the point is is that the producer wasn't the rapper and it was treated a little bit like a pitcher you know is not expected to hit in baseball right so then kanye comes along and he is the producer of the moment he's all over the blueprint which is one of the great jay-z records you can hear him on everything in that kind of you know, the tail end of hip hop golden era, the the very end of the 90s and then the early 2000s. And he insists that he's also a rapper to the point where he like there's that famous scene where he gets on the table and starts rapping in front of Jay-Z. Yes. Unasked. Right. He wants to get this. It's a famous scene. And everyone's like, you know, why are you doing this, Kanye? You're such a great producer. Why do you want to rap? And he forces it. And finally, in 2004, we get College Dropout, which is his first full length album. And College Dropout is really good, even though I would never say that I think that I don't consider Kanye to be in the pantheon of rappers. I think he's no, sometimes he's, he's good, but he turned himself into a front man. He turned himself into a star, which I think no one had done. So that in itself was really significant. <laughs> and then he uses his platform as a rapper, especially in the 2000s, the first records to introduce the idea long before someone like Chance the Rapper, whose coloring book is, is great, but he starts introducing themes of his Christianity in his music that also will have songs that are as materialistic and misogynistic and kind of like, you know, thuggish as anything else. But he will then have a song like Jesus Walks and he will talk about these kinds of issues, you know, in that way. And then he has, you know, and, and I, I love the first three records, then he takes a bit of a left turn and does 808s and Heartbreak, which isn't even a rap album. And I said this on another podcast last week, 808 and Heartbreaks is that's Drake's sound. Right. That's like he comes up with it, like the auto-tune singing. Then he does My Dark, Beautiful, Twisted Fantasy, which is, you know, in my view, like hip hop's Abbey Road. It's a brilliant, mm -hmm. you have to, there, there have been books written about this for that one record and that has it all in it. So it's like, what he's able to do and then it's like he got too big for hip-hop and he put out jesus is king which is a gospel record he's exploring on the album yeezus where you the title of your your piece black skinhead that's a song on that that's a great record i don't know if it's a rap I, album i, I think mean, I, it's almost sounds, is... feels like an industrial kind of post-punk thing yeah you know so he's able to do all this and constantly kind of change up his sound and produce high quality stuff and even donda which has not gotten as great reviews I mean, I, first of all, loved Ye, the one that we talked about. Where yes. My polar thing. I think he's still putting out great stuff, despite all of that. So I don't know. Is there anything we want to add there in the conversation just to sort of give the listener a sense of we're not just talking about a good rapper. We're talking about a musical visionary. I, yeah, this is this is categorically different from I think a lot of people who don't listen to hip hop. It's sort of there's a blur of names of Little X and Big Y, and you're not seeing yeah. sort of the distinctions between things. Kanye is a there, there isn't anyone else. 
when it, it's, I would advise uh, viewers, listeners to watch the Netflix documentary Genius, which shows his early beginnings. And that really highlights, I think, when, you've, when you consider where he is now and you see those early days where he's struggling, everyone just dismiss, dismisses him as just a producer. It's, it's incredible to see where he comes from there. And at that beginning, he starts with two really brave decisions for his singles. He has a car crash, his jaw is wired shut, so right. he makes this brilliant debut song, Through the Wire. And then, as you mentioned, he comes out as one of his his lead single, I believe, on the college dropout with Jesus Walks. Again, this is an era when it's the bling era. People are talking about a whole bunch of other issues that certainly not Christian messaging at all. And that's his debut. That's the way he introduces himself into the world. And I think lots of people you could you could try to bundle Kanye's discography into sort of a couple of different camps. You've sort of the preppy era of his first three albums, and then you have a grand era of sort of the big, my dark, beautiful, twisted fantasy, and Jesus, which I think is his best album. Uh, but you think Jesus is his best? album? Jesus is his best album. It is interesting. It, it is it is bold. It is it edits in a really unique way. You don't get a transition like on on New Slaves, and, and then you have these even. And, and there's some things that are on it are just quintessentially Kanye. There's Blood on the Leaves is this incredible song to listen to. Oh, yeah. And yet there's something absolutely depraved about sampling Nina Simone for essentially a, a love lost song. Like it is, it is like it, it's so improper, but it works so well. It, yeah, it's sacrilegious almost. Absolutely. Right? It's for something so serious yeah. to use it for something so comparatively you know blithe and, and light but it, it is just a fantastic album and and again as you say and then you come into the the pablo the life of pablo era where he's he's combining these gospel elements with pop and it's it, it's hard to think of a musician who shapes sounds more more frequently than Kanye. And as you mentioned, 808s and heartbreaks again with Kanye's discography it's so easy to accidentally jump over an album that changed yeah. the genre with oh yeah that one and it, and, and it's, they're all incredible and with 808s and heartbreaks prior to that autotune had simply been used as essentially a tool to polish up pop singing that's right it'd been used to get this sort of electronic sheen to get people these new starlets who weren't very good singers but maybe they could have some stage presence if a producer gins them up and takes all their money they go let's slap some autotune over it it'll be catchy and it'll play in clubs Kanye took that and was applied it to his voice and used his voice as, of, as an instrument. This is a great Vox video talks about this too, where he uses it in a really unique way that just no one had seen before. I think one one thing I didn't get to talk about. As I said, I sorry, think Drake's. On. I think half of Drake's style is because of 808s and Heartbreak. I think all of Drake's style. I think he it takes yeah. stuff from everything else. Everything else is styleless, though. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I'm not a great fan. I, I think again, that's a perfect example of someone who. Kanye will vary and change his style with every album, basically. Drake also does that. The problem, however, is that very rarely is it successful. P people, I disagree with you. I think I, you I, I, I like Drake too. Well, I think I, I wouldn't compare Kanye really pretty no. much to anyone in because, as I said, I think of him as a musical visionary. It's extraordinary that he has been this productive and put out this great material over the like like almost 20 years right i mean if you compare it like you think about it i'm not taking anything i love stevie wonder for example right mm. but stevie wonder's golden era his you know his imperial era to use the chris melanthi you know term is like you know it's maybe music of my mind or talking book 
up through, if you want to be super generous music, his album from 1980, but it's probably songs in the key of life. But it's like, you know, there's a hot six or seven years. Right. I love almost everything from Prince, but if you really want to say, like, where's the Prince peak? You know, you could argue it's probably Dirty Mind through Sign of the Times. But I would know. Dirty Mind through Love Sexy for all the Prince fans. Love Sexy is great. I mean, um, you can even you can think of other people who are even earlier who yeah. are so influential. I think Fats Domino is one of these people that I'll go back and you listen to the music before Fats Domino, and then the Fat Man comes, and it's this double time, and it's completely changes. It it goes from blues to rock in that one intro, and yet there was this short period where he was very yeah. influential. He had like, what a year, he had a year and a half or three, and that's it, right? And it's it's yeah. remarkable. And he he did one big change. It's, it, and it's hard for an artist to make one big change and really change the way that music sounds, popular music sounds. Kanye has done it successively. This is why I would compare Kanye to Miles Davis, because Miles Davis changes music. You know, he starts off as an, a kind of a, a younger guy in the bebop scene, goes to California, does the cool jazz, comes back to New York, is doing modal then adds electronic instruments and you have, you know, the late sixties fusion. We associate that with bitches brew, but then he, he kind of becomes more funk elements. He's got two drummers. You could say Miles Davis probably changed music like five times. And I think that of that's where Kanye is. And by the way, both of them happen to also be personally troubled, you know, difficult, <laughs> troubled people. Miles Davis, you know, famously abused his wives, you know, struggled with addiction. Kanye, you know, and then I, you can one can only imagine if there was, a, you know, Twitter and and social media, you know, in the in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s, we might have, you know, all kinds of evidence that Miles Davis had a lot of crazy opinions as well. Yes. And I think, I, yeah, it's I think one of the things to that the Kanye is also unrecognized. It, one of the pieces that we that I, I mention in in the piece, his musical contributions, I mention his fashion, which is, I, I think, within outside of sneakerheads, people don't realize how enormous an influence Kanye's contribution of fashion has been with his, his sneaker line has been. The 350s has fundamentally changed. Every Skechers you see is basically a knockoff of that design. The, four, the foam runner, pardon me, designed by Stephen Smith, is really pushed the the clog wave that we now see with the repopularization of Crocs. Whether you think that's for good or ill is is up to you. But the 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 part I didn't get to mention, and I think is crucial to understanding Kanye, is he is a talent scout of unparalleled yeah. comparison. Kid Cudi, Virgil Abloh, Matthew Williams, Big Sean. You have these are huge names. Travis Scott, huge names. Some of the biggest in fashion. Nicki Minaj. Nicki Minaj. Even Nicki of starts with with she's with Young Money and and Lil Wayne, but she doesn't really break until Monster, which is off my dark, beautiful, twisted fantasy. I always screw up. <laughs> but you know, yeah, right. He's he's extraordinary in that regard. Yeah. And it's and again, I think it is to return to the ugliness that we're seeing now it, it's because of this going by his gut is you know kid cuddy is i, I believe he handed him a mixtape I, I can't remember from getting mixed that up with big sean but regardless it's these situations of people that you really most people would dismiss or think oh that's a nice young guy you know virgil abloh working in a printing shop where kanye wants to make some merch you don't think that guy's going to be the next head designer of louis vuitton and one of the most influential designers of the 21st century you don't but kanye saw that and Kanye invests in these people. Matthew Williams, who heads Givenchy, uh, menswear for Givenchy, uh, came from Kanye's talent pool. 
And part of it is just because he has an intuitive going by his gut approach to things. It means that he can take sounds that people haven't seen and put it into his music and it's killer. It means that he can see a design philosophy or designers who people aren't seeing and make incredible shoes that don't look like anything people have seen before and sell more than anything else on the market. But it also means that when it comes to politics, it means that he doesn't necessarily come from it from the rigor that you would necessarily want it and it comes from an emotional perspective and if he's in a paranoid mode if he thinks people are stealing the world from him that leads to crap like this yeah well i want to now get into something that it would be easy for us who like yeezy or no not yeezy but yay we like who like yay to be like oh i wish he would just take his meds and then he would be he wouldn't be so crazy hmm. And say all this stuff, and it'd be easier to be his fan. Blah blah blah. To, to be fair, for, for me that of, isn't the case. Like it, it, for no, I know, but I'm saying I. For but I mean, you raise this in your piece. In your piece, you're like, well, actually, you know, maybe part of his genius is coming from the fact that he occasionally allows for his superpower of and his mental illness, his bipolarity, to sort of run free. Right. And maybe maybe we don't get you know, all of the creative genius, maybe it just has that it also comes with, you know, the conspiracy theories, the anti-Semitism right. and everything else. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you, you pay the piper. You know, this is, I think for another, actually for a different domain, but similarly hugely influential, you look at Roman Polanski, one of the most influential filmmakers of the 20th century, really changed horror with with Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby. Exactly. And yeah. and a lot of his work, there's big themes of of sexual sort of immorality or perversion. And clearly that was something that was within him. If you look to well, later you know, Woody Allen is another one. Exact right? another another perfect example of that where you have the Although I'm not I'm not co signing on every allegation against him. No, I mean, I, I, I think I, that the, the Polanski allegations are basically bulletproof and I think that the Allen yeah. ones are a lot muddier. Well, but even if okay, so even if we take with Woody Allen even if we accept that like, okay, he didn't molest his daughter with Mia Farrow. Still weird. It's really weird that he, you know Yeah. Exactly. Still weird that, you know. Listeners know it's weird. <laughs> yeah. But exactly. I think that you, there's this, I think that we look up to people in a way that's really unhealthy with modern celebrity. You see someone and you go, oh, they're a great artist. Oh, they're great at this thing. Oh, I really admire that. Or that speaks to me. Therefore, I really like this person, which, which is a really bad response because uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, part of that abstract mentality, be able to think out of the box, it comes with people being a bit weird and having this really unique and different perspective. And I, I think that we should just, if for, for me, this whole situation has not made me even hesitate even once about listening to his music because it's still as great as it always was. It's the Rosemary's Baby is still a great film. Chinatown is still a great film. Manhattan is still an incredible film. And I think that you just have to accept that part of what's brilliant in art is that it doesn't, the, the best art is not necessarily even all that positive. It, it can be great and joyous, like power or stronger, these great power anthems, but so much great art, it, it troubles you in a way, or it pushes you, or it feels slightly different. And it's why such so, so many great albums, when you first listen to them, you're like, I, I will say, as I say, Jesus is, I think his masterpiece and it's my favorite album of his and one of my favorite albums of all time. 
And I can tell you that was not my first thought when I listened to it. You're hearing on site and it's this discordant, you know, sort of drone and you go, ooh. But over time, you see something that they didn't. And and perhaps, or, or something, sorry, you see what they saw that you didn't. And you can, I think that that outside of the box thinking, you just sort of have to go, okay, when I come to a great album, that's what I'm there for. I'm enjoying the music and I appreciate that the person made it. That doesn't mean, therefore, this person is a moral paragon who should run for life for office and I should model my life after. And that, you know, this is just not a, this isn't a mature way that we should treat culture. And I think it's somewhat anti-artistic 100%. because it doesn't appreciate that. Well, you yeah, can I mean, love I think I would art. go, I would, I, I would go further. I would say that if you're somebody who is in the political realm, you shouldn't have an artistic personality because an artistic personality is somebody who thinks differently and is brave enough to, you know, go against, you know, the, the 99% or whatever it is in order to sort of make a statement artistically that's real and authentic. And if you're a politician or if you're a political writer, you have to be attuned to where most people are and, you know, reflect in some ways their thinking. And if you want to persuade them, you have to, you know, kind of meet them where they are. Right. Vice versa, like it, should, it also follows that, it, that, that great artists that, you know, that, we, we, that politicians by that because of that can't really be great artists in the sense that they're not going to be coming up with, a, with, an incre- with an entirely new way of looking at something. And we're going to think of them in that, that sort of sense as a visionary. You sort of... I think that is... A, yeah, yeah, you have a, people f- to be really brilliant in different domains. They have to sort of be abnormal in a particular skill set. I think that great sort of civil right advocates had a really sense of moral compulsion that was almost involuntary and significantly stronger than most people around them. Like that is, in some sense, if it's the wrong cause that could be a crippling and life destructive thing but it's only looking back that we go wow they really changed the world and it's in some sense obviously their cause was moral and just and looking back we we go absolutely that is the right side of history but at that point right it, like it's, it's it's like if it's it's we admire the organizer the activist who advances the goal of civil rights right. but if that same person was like living 50 years before and they were part of like temperance unions <laughs> and they wanted prohibition we'd be like why are you making America less fun? Or maybe in 50 years' making, time, you... we think that that's totally sound. I hope not. But <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's that people have these compulsions that are out, out, of, out, out of sync with the rest, out of sync with time. And great ethicists or someone like Peter Singer can be like, I would argue is he is almost rational to a fault. You can have these people and they think about things, utilitarian philosophers, particularly in this way, where they will think about things in such a sort of mathematical, such a structured way that it almost is very unhuman and seems like you don't appreciate life in the right way. And that leads for great ethical frameworks and great ethical thinking. And with Peter Singer, you know, you wouldn't get at the the vegetarianism and, and cares about animal rights without him. But a normal person couldn't write the way he writes and think the way he thinks. And that's kind of the point that Kanye thinks in a way that is not like most of us. And it will lead to causes that aren't great and thinking that isn't great in areas that we shouldn't care what he thinks about. We only need to care about the thing that he's mm. brilliant at, why he's in the culture. It's for his art. 
It's for his music. It's for his fashion. And he wants to do something else. When he started, when he was a kid, he wanted making video games. That's where he started. And maybe one day he'll release an amazing video game. And that seems totally within his skill set too. I wouldn't put it past him. But I don't expect a great political movement to come from him. I don't expect a great thesis on modern liberalism. You know, I don't expect yeah, coherent sure. thoughts right. on Judaism. Right. Okay. So a couple a couple more things I want to hit with you. Okay. So this is a weird paradox because I associate reality TV, reality culture with people who don't have talent <laughs> becoming famous for just being famous, so to speak, right? Kanye has enormous talent, and yet he's gravitated towards becoming something of a reality star in addition to everything else. And I don't know what to make of that other than the fact that he's like the perfect kind of artistic visionary for our era, right? Because we mm. are in, living in a reality TV era. We, we elected a reality TV president, Trump, in America. But like, it's just interesting because it's like, Kanye, you could be... You know, you could you could be John Lennon, man. You are like John Lennon. You could you could be like Tupac, like right. you know what I mean. And instead, I'm seeing you like going into the TMZ office and like you know what I mean? like with Candace <laughs> Owens, and it's like you're on the Kardashian show, and like you know you're you're getting in this weird like kind of celebrity stuff that I usually don't pay attention to. You're obsessed with like Pete Davidson, right? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like all that stuff is like that is like I associate that as like. People who just want to be famous who don't have any talent. Right. Although I guess, I mean, some people would say Pete Davidson has talent. I don't know. But but, but Kanye has more talent than anybody, and yet he's doing that. So I don't know if you can comment on yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think it's worth, I'll return to the Candace point later, which I think is, is a slightly different quality. But, but I do think, not to get too meta, but I think there's a lot of people who do podcasts, and Joe Rogan is a perfect example of this. There's some people who don't understand why Joe Rogan's so good. They're just like, what is it? It's just this guy talking for hours. Like, no, no, he is compelling for hours on end. He can have a great conversation for hours on end and people listen to it. I think that wielding press and wielding attention is somewhat the same way. And it also can get really addictive. You get better at it over time. The reason that Kardashians continue to be at the top of culture, at least I wouldn't necessarily, not necessarily that, of the top of low culture, I would say they are very, they get lots of clicks and they have lots of influence in the most surface way, but it is meaningful. But it takes a certain skill set of sort of attention wrangling, of making sure that people can see you and notice you. And again, as I think earlier we pointed this out, of Kanye usually will, as you introed, Kanye will go on Twitter, go back to Instagram right before he launches a new product. Before this, you know, he went to Paris Fashion Week and he had the infamous White Lives Matter t-shirt. But it, this that I don't even think was the product that he was starting this all to advertise, it was his Yeezy Shades, which have been in development for a while and are these really interesting new, they're the first, I believe, first rollable polarized plastic sunglasses. And these really cool things. And he started to do a bit of a social media rollout, giving them to tons of influencers and this sort of thing. So it isn't incidental that he comes up and he starts being more noisy and talks more and is getting more attention. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a month's time, these Yeezy Shades come out and they're a huge success. It's you know, so I think it's a but that suggests that, that there's something use. deliberate. Okay, that that's the paradox, right? Because on the one hand, what's compelling from a just reality TV perspective of some of these recent, you know, interviews with Kanye mm. and tweet threads or whatever he's doing, is that he seems out of control. Like if you go back on YouTube and you want to like look at the best of Kanye clips that are just, you know, clickbait. Yeah, and you know you you. Even going all the way back to 2005, to the George George Bush doesn't like black people. 
that was like he was doing a telethon he was not reading from the script mike he's sitting there next to he's standing there next to mike myers he's just saying what's on the top of his head and there's something you can tell in the moment this is dangerous it's not he's not supposed to be that way and that's why it goes viral but ditto for the taylor swift thing at the grammys right. you know what i'm saying so you have all these moments with 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 kanye where it feels like the cameras are in front of him He's out of control. But what you just said is very interesting because you're saying, well, it's kind of calculated. He, he loses control in front of the cameras when he wants to push a product. I think, well, I think it's, I think it returns to, you know, vibe check is the expression of the moment among my generation of writers. I don't quite know why, but of anyone who's got a, a, a good gut for knowing like what to say or what to do at the right moment, he has just this intuitive notion for it. I think it's Kanye. I think he has, he'd been in the bunker developing these glasses and developing his new Yeezy Gap line, which is eventually coming out seemingly first quarter of next year. And he sort of had spent this time of focusing on that. And then he, it's done. And he's thinking, right, time for the rollout. And he looks at social media and he's not seeing his name there. And I don't think it's, it is calculated. It, it's, I don't think it's calculated. I think it's timed. I think that it occurs as a reaction okay. to his cycle of building and then and then the marketing. And he looks to it. And then part of why he tends to unravel in these periods, he looks to it, he looks on social media, and he goes, I'm the biggest artist on the wor in the world. Why am I not being mentioned? Why am I at the top of the Twitter trend for these easy shades? They're absolutely great. Why aren't people talking about it? And that's when he goes onto Instagram and starts posting stuff and he sees it going up and he sees it going up and he sees people talking about it more. The the Pete Davidson one, I think, is a slightly different situation because of the situation with his kids where Pete David him and Kanye West <laughs> Kanye West and his wife Kim Kardashian had divorced or are divorcing are separated and they have four kids and seemingly the Kardashians were mostly looking after the kids and Kanye wanted more control and at that same moment she started having this very public relationship with Pete Davidson and Kanye didn't like any of that. I think he didn't like Pete Davidson. I don't think he liked that Pete Davidson's dad is a Jew if that helps anything for the current context but I, I i you know i think he saw something where it's somebody is getting a lot of attention it's not him and it involves his kids and that really riled him up in a way that again time's not calculated i mean interestingly enough pete davidson also somebody who has been quite open about his own mental illnesses. right what does that tell us about Kim Kardashian that she likes these somewhat broken celebrities and she wants to fix them? I don't know. Or? I mean, but I'm not sure if you ever listened. She, Kim Kardashian did a podcast episode with Barry, Barry Weiss, and it was fabulous. It was wonderful. And it's super interesting. When was that? This was a while ago. It was sometime, I okay. believe, last year, but it was a really, just a okay. really, really great episode. And you listen to her and you go, wow, this is really like. You know, she has vocal fry, obviously. She's not trying to hide who she is. Her accent was what it is, and that's very mocked. And But she's an articulate woman who is quite intelligent. It's not as though this is... I think it's very easy to caricature people. Oh, well, I wouldn't not, say you know, she's not intelligent. She's obviously doing something right, you know. But it's also in the same sense that I think we return to a point you made on your other episode about art and artists, that intelligence is not a single domain element. Kim Kardashian is exactly is is an articulate and clever person. She's very good with media. I don't think she's she's not creative. It's not incidental that her brand skims super popular, super successful. Kanye was the one who did the initial designs, who chose a lot of the initial designers, and in fact, the designs are a basically commercialized version of the Yeezy season one to three 
clothes. And Kim took an idea that was Kanye's given to her freely. I don't think she's stealing it. Nobody claims that. But she acknowledges this was Kanye's designs and Kanye's touch. She doesn't have a creative spirit. And that's fine. But by the same extent, I think you can say Kanye is a genius and an idiot in different domains. Yeah, I think that's right. That's great. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Now, before you go, Ross, and thank you so much for your time, I want to get your thoughts to steel man the argument. Kanye is somebody who has, you know, hundreds of millions of people who look up to him. He's a massive cultural figure. He's, a, he's one of the biggest celebrities in the world. When he talks about, you know, Jewish control of the media and exploitation of black people and these toxic theories about the lost tribes of Israel being the black people in America versus, you know, yes. that kind of stuff. It, it 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 may some might argue that it would give like a kind of legitimacy to these views that a are permission structure at least Ill, a permission structure at least right and that that is something that we have to be very much on the lookout for and it's not just simply a question of free speech now i have some i i wanted to i call it a steel man because i think that's a good argument even though i don't entirely agree with it but let's grapple with that yeah um so th what do you say to somebody who's like this is actually don't it's don't joke about it it's serious it's like it's not just funny you know because even if one percent of kanye's followers think it's true then that's you know that's like potentially like a million more anti-semites or something so i i think we can break it down into two separate areas there about the free speech discussion okay. and then separately the influence point and the influence is something that i've always been a strong advocate of a free i'm a, a free speech absolutist is a term that i i is overused, but I would resonate with, you know, and I, I'm very, very skeptical whenever there are bans or limitations on people because of that. I'm very against anything about cancer, cancel culture and anything sort of like that. So, however, and a classic argument that's made by free speech advocates is you can't hold Justin Bieber responsible for the girl fans who cut themselves because of him or yada, 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 or Nicki Minaj fans who will, under any Megan Thee Stallion post, will go completely nuts. Now, the, the the there is a grain of truth i think to the steel man position what i mean by this is that when you look to lots of comments about kanye there are certain people who just love the guy and in a very juvenile way are very willing to defend him in any sense does this oh it's, look at this this is the best new thing and you go no that that's crap you know it, that's rare with kanye but some shirts and stuff he'll release and you go what and the, and and they don't age well they're just not great. But some of these Kanye fans will go, this is the best thing in the world. You see so many comments on Instagram about the White Lives Matter shirts, and they're like, oh my god, I cannot wait to get this. And I think to the same degree, when people see Kanye getting criticized for this, what before would have been a, you know, hell yeah, Kanye, fuck all the haters. Now it's hell yeah, Kanye, fuck these Jews that are stopping you. Now that's pretty damn ugly. And yeah, I do see not, that. It's not great. However, I do yeah. think that this is a group of sort of, in, in legal theory, there's a concept of sort of like an eggshell skull, and it's someone who is so vulnerable that you couldn't really hold for damages, and I, I'm not a lawyer, so pardon my excuse, but the where you couldn't hold sue someone because they got damaged, injured because of a situation that most other people wouldn't be. In a similar sense, these are people that you and I, or most normal people, do not see Kanye's comments and go, that guy seems with it. You know, most people see that and sort of are somewhat uncomfortable or disturbed. So the people who do find it persuasive, who do go from ravenous defensive Kanye in a generic form to ravenous defensive Kanye in an anti-Semitic form, 
I don't really worry about them too much simply because they sort of always would exist and there are always going to be that sort of people. The, the human race is a wonderfully diverse group and some parts of that diversity are weird and unpleasant. The free speech point, I would sort of hold a similar sense. He was suspended from his Instagram and Twitter accounts. And the explanation that both platforms seem to be behind is that the anti-Semitic content on both violates their terms of service. Twitter removed the DEFCON 3 tweet. Instagram locked it after he had accused Diddy of being controlled by Jewish managers. I don't think that's a good reason to restrict it. I am more open to the idea that probably people who have are in a bad mental episode should have their access to these things limited. But I don't necessarily think that's in the domain of a tech platform's responsibility. I think that's their managers. I think that's their family. I think it's that they should have a good circle of people around them. And Kanye, unfortunately, has a circle of yes men, seemingly. And that's that's where the problem that's, lies. That's an excellent, an excellent point. And... I, I, the one thing I'm worried about is I don't want the social media companies, I don't want anything to diminish anything that is part of Kanye's artistic output. And my concern is that some of these episodes will potentially create a situation where he's perceived to be so mentally unstable that he, he, may, he may not be able to be an artist. In the sense that, remember, you know, and like we saw this with the conservatorship of Britney mm. Spears, right? I mean, like, and her family, you know, are fiendishly taking advantage of all of that because there's so much money involved. Right. But like, this is what I'm talking about is like the idea that like, well, you know, Kanye is kind of displaying these things. And it gets back to this point, which is that on the one hand, if you're just, you know, if, if you're just a, a, you know, working hacks like you and me and our doctors prescribe meds for whatever reason we should take those meds but if you're an artist and you feel that the meds are sort of taking that maybe the 15 percent of your creativity is being lopped off in this then there's an argument for or at least i can understand why you know kanye would want to embrace his bipolarity and his manic episodes because in those manic episodes we get you know th th these incredibly creative yeah spells which produce great art and so my concern is that, like, the crazier he sounds, and he does sound crazy, but then I was going back. He sounded crazy 20 years ago. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it's, let's not, like, act like this is all, whoa, I'm shocked. You know, I, I mean, even when eyes. he was in the Trump, when he was visiting the White House and he was talking about building electronic jets and he was showing Trump his iPhone and the unlock code was, like, 0000, zero, zero, zero or something, I, what people failed to recognize as well is that his MAGA hat was not a MAGA hat. That was a custom hat that he made because he wanted it styled better and stuff. Like, this is a, there, there's a certain, yeah. nobody else Kid Rock isn't doing that. You know what I mean? And and I think on your your point about embracing a little bit of that that sort of live wire that you can have that is unstable and unhealthy but could create creative genius. I think of the example of drug use. I think that I personally support legalization of basically every drug. And it's because I think that you should be able to experiment with how you think with how you think and how your mind flows and that often that's for destructive ends. But for some people, for some brilliant artists, it can be, you know, what is Jimi Hendrix without LSD? You know, and we would be so deprived without that alteration of his mind. And, you know, what on the output side, does it really matter whether the neurochemical that's playing with your mind is one that comes from within or is a chemical that you took in a pill? So I'm, I'm with you there. I think the, the other point is that I think 
one of the Kanye's points on the Drink Champs episode, which I would point, he's been on Drink Champs three times and none of them are particularly coherent or intellectually interesting. This one is just has the tenor of anti-Semitism to it, which makes it particularly ugly. But one of the points he mentions is about Margaret Sanger and about Planned Parenthood. Now, Margaret Sanger wasn't was against abortion and you know has been misrepresentative but the history of american eugenics is one of seeing originally it was homosexual men and it was these are sexual deviants they need castrated and it was mad women and you know and this is an awful history and it's understandable that we should again i don't think that the to be clear to listeners i do not think that this is analogous to you know chemical castration of people i don't consider kanye's controlled by his managers to be that severe. But my point being is that we should be really, really dubious and careful when thinking about this sort of thing. You can have concern for Kanye's health, for his well-being, that you wish there were a lot fewer yes-men around him and a lot more people who are willing to tell him something that he doesn't want to hear. But it's also worth knowing that a lot of musicians in the history of this have been manipulated and controlled and hurt by their managers. I mean, Elvis Presley is the perfect example of this. I, he even Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. I mean, but Kanye even cited Elvis. I believe in the Drinks Champs episode, he said, you know, had I think he said something like, "Had I been Elvis, Elvis would have toured internationally," or something like something to the degree of that. Pointing out that Elvis's dream to travel and perform abroad was hampered by a manipulative manager, and that Kanye's mentality now would not allow that. And it's kind of hard to disagree with that. However much the ill side of that is absolutely repellent, repugnant, and you don't necessarily want to hear it. Right. I mean, the other thing is, though, that it's very rare that you have a creative person who's also has a mind for money and business. Yes, that's true. Which is why we have managers of talent. And, you know, I mean, it, it comes down to you should, you know, if you're going to be a manager, I and you're unethical, that's really bad, and you should be called out for it. But not everyone who's a manager is unethical, and that's, you know, but it's like, I, I doubt, I mean, Kanye's a creative genius. I can't imagine that he'd be good with you no. know, keeping the book. I mean, he posted a screenshot of his his one of his close design friends is Demna Vasalia. Demna now is also anonymous, like, yay. He is the head of designer at Balenciaga, and Kanye posted a screenshot that he spent over $4 million at Balenciaga in the last year. That is not necessarily indicative of sound financial planning. It is it is odd and interesting that someone who has such a brilliant talent scouting intuition doesn't clearly doesn't have that for elements outside of music or fashion. I find that interesting and odd. But yeah, but I mean, just getting back to like the the people, I I, I tend to I think one of my insights into the current predicament that we're in culturally and politically is that elites have lost faith in everybody else. Mm. And so the idea that like, I think that there will be a subset of Kanye fans and you, I think you really described it perfectly. There are going to be people who just support Kanye, whatever he does, because that's just their personality. And you're just, and then you're gonna have to write that in. That's just normal. But most people I think will be able to distinguish between, you know, Kanye's ravings on this podcast, the drink champs right. versus what he's doing musically. And that there are moments even though Kanye can be so profane and, you know, express vulgarity in, even in his music, but there are moments where he can, he can express a, a, a kind of hidden truth or something of profound mm. beauty, not just in the music itself, but in 
you know, the message that he tries to sort of elevate. Like, I love the opening of Jesus is King with every minute, every hour, every millisecond. <laughs> to me, it's just gorgeous. And it, it, it captures something that's enduring. And I believe I, I you know, we, we can't possibly know, but I think that, that there are there are sometimes when you hear something, you're like, this is something that's going to endure past our lifetime. Or even, um, you know, the opening track from Yay, I Thought About Killing You. Yeah. Now, that song, actually, the original version of it is only available on YouTube because they didn't get the sample cleared before it was released. So if you have an original CD of it or vinyl, or you can listen on YouTube, that's how it should be listened to. The streaming versions have a crap. What was on. the original sample? So I, I can't remember exactly, but it sounds, it's very different and it, the new one just doesn't really work. But that that song is yeah. is about this like homicidal suicidal thought and it's this about self destruction destruction yeah. of the other and is he talking about his ego is it you know the desire to destroy the ego is it a desire to destroy this person that you're jealous of and you know that isn't necessarily you know if your if your child was in a music competition at their school and that was the lyrics they produced you would not be particularly chuffed and they're probably not indicative of a happy mentality but they really speak to universal feelings of self-loathing and suicidality and it's a beautiful you know a fantastic song what's the one that he, what's the one on that album that he talks about his daughter Oh, uh, that one actually was ghostwritten, which was part of the that got a little bit of controversy around that too. But again, that speaks to the, well. Nicki Minaj gave that line, you know, I want my daughter to be like Nicki. Yes, but no Minaj. <laughs> but no, ex exactly the. Yeah, I, I think that you that delving into these deeper parts, these darker elements that that Kanye is willing to be. He he doesn't have a sort of mental filter necessarily, or more importantly, an emotional filter, and that leads to crap but in music it can lead to really beautiful stuff i i think of a moment that i i love is the acapella version he did of gorgeous that he did i believe i forget the name of the documentary i believe it was a documentary and you can find it on youtube and it's just this incredible sort of angry rant about racism and, it, and, it's, and it's odd and weird but it's it's really wonderful and it's only because he is so uninhibited that you can get these moments that have this lightning to that that feel dangerous and alive and it can create something really beautiful and and really again changing genres you don't make the foam runner clogs as a signature shoe if you're being a moderate normal person you make something that looks like a normal pair of shoes you don't make something that looks like an, <laughs> an alien slug and they're great i own a pair they're the comfiest shoes i've ever worn i think they're fabulous most people bloody hate them but you don't do that if you think in a normal way that's not where you lean and you know i think we just need to accept some more abnormality i, I also think there's a, a point I, I compared mental illness to drug use earlier in in a way of that it can of sort of using the way it changes how you think. There was a very good piece in the New York Times. I forget who wrote it, but it was about where did all the addict artists go? And what I thought was, well, instead of using heroin or excessive alcoholism, our addict artists are people who have who don't medicate. It's not over medication of these, you know, of narcotics that they shouldn't be using necessarily. It's people who aren't taking the medication they need. And and that's sort of again, Kanye would fall into that mold. That's fascinating that you that we, you can get the same result by just that's that's a that's a really great point that like if you're not on your meds, it's the equivalent of maybe the old style of kind of being at an addict. And so yeah, it, I also I I do think I mean it does, let's, we should make it very clear. I mean, <laughs> 
Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker wasn't a genius because he used heroin. Charlie Parker was a genius because he was a genius who happened to use heroin. And maybe he used heroin because when your mind is operating at that speed and at that level, you need something to kind of take the edge off when you're not creating. Yeah, there's a lot of self-justified addiction and a lot of people who are mentally unwell who need help and need to take their medication who may, who will listen to something like this and would find it as a sort of self-justification. And that's not what it is. Again, I would, I think of... I, I do also think this is maybe this is the maybe this goes against a free will position that people would like, but I do think that in some way of the Kanye fans who will defend him no matter what, and this includes it, I also think there are people who are brilliant and have mental illnesses and they probably could use with some medication who just aren't going to, and there's not really much we can do or, you know, be upset about that. And it's just sort of the way it is. I think you just sort of have to accept that. I also I do think as well with the the response <clears throat> Pardon me. I do think as well with the response to Kanye recently, there's a there are some people who are disturbed by the anti-Semitism and wish that he didn't say it. There's also another group of people who are just basically like, please shut up. That this is just another range of things that Kanye says, and they don't see it necessarily as categorically different. And I do think you need to call out that this is really evil stuff. It is sort of a mind virus of a really disgusting kind. You know, it is my my hope is that he I think the only way this could be solved is that there isn't, you know, a an empathetic, nice Jewish person of some maybe Barry Weiss, who knows, has a podcast and chat with him, maybe in public or in private. I think something like that is the maybe the best way that comes out of this, or maybe he just moves on. Well, I don't this is know. yeah, I said I said this in an earlier podcast about Kanye, but you know, I mean, the classic example is Abe Foxman, who would right. who would go to celebrities and like just talk to them on a human level, and it wasn't in front of cameras. I have I hold out hope because I do love his art that something like that you could you could reach Kanye in that way, and it would be, you know, I my sense is that like I, I hope that that's the case. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't put him in the category of people who I would. I do think that there are public figures like George Galloway in your country. <laughs> oh, who, joy. You know, put a lot of effort and time into advancing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories yeah. and, you know, have, you know, have over the course of their lives and their careers, you know, really dedicated a lot of energy and effort into it. And whereas it feels with Kanye, it's all just sort of like, it's just noise. Off and, you know, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, this is like the latest thing coming out of my head. Tune in next week, you know, and I'll, right. I'll I'll tell you about aliens or something. Ross, this was a great conversation. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for coming on. On Twitter, you can find him at that Ross Chap. Indeed, is that right? That is right. And anything else you want to promote? No, I think that's I think that's everything. Thank you for you have a Substack. Do you have a Substack? Ross Anderson writes. I don't use it for any Substack writing. I just use it if you want to have an email notification with any of my new articles. You can find them there. But okay. that Ross Chap on Twitter. That's that's where I am helplessly addicted like the rest of us. And read his his piece for Tablet called Black Skinhead. Also read David Samuel's American Mozart from 10 years ago in The Atlantic. And there's a lot of literature on Kanye West. And I hope if you're interested, you can explore that as well as his extraordinary discography. And again, thank you so much, Ross. This was a great show. Thank you, Eli. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 